beautiful, wonderful, exciting passage. And when I get to these passages, I have to tell you, I come with fear and trembling because I think, how can I possibly do justice to this passage? Because it stands alone as such a remarkable text. And uh, by God's grace, he'll help me to be able to, uh, to highlight a few things that may be of encouragement to you and insightful to you and helping you grow in your walk with the Lord. But let's begin by, by reading the text. And uh, it's a fairly lengthy passage that we're covering this morning, but it begins in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
And with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Father, we thank you for your word. We're delighted to be here. And God, we surrender our hearts and our lives to you and ask that you would transform us. God, for those that are distracted this morning by concerns and anxieties, by heartache, Lord, I pray that you would lift them, God, and that they would hear your word today. God, that they'd be blessed. And for those that are rejoicing today, Father, I pray that you'd bless them, God. May we be those that rejoice with those rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. And may all of us be lifted up, God, and inspired, reminded, God, of your coming, your second coming, Father, but also reminded of this wonderful incarnation, the second incarnation, by means of the third person of the Trinity, entering the hearts of of man again, Lord. And we pray that you'd bless this word, and God, that you'd help me, Father, to deliver it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I came across a book many years ago called They Found the Secret. Some of you may have read this. It's a a compilation of stories about some of the great saints of the past uh, whose lives were transformed. One of those was Hudson Taylor. Uh, John Bunyan is one of them. Amy Carmichael, Oswald Chambers, uh, D.L. Moody, Andrew Murray. The list goes on. There's some 20 saints of the past whose lives were transformed after they came to a saving knowledge of Christ. D.L. Moody tells his story in this book. Uh, when in 1871, during the Chicago fire, he was already an evangelist in, in, uh, in the United States and was uh, very, very fruitful, doing a lot. He was a shoe salesman that became a Christian and began to preach the gospel. Uh, he wasn't a very fancy guy. Uh, he didn't even graduate from high school. His grammar was, was horrendous. Uh, people made fun of him in the papers because he couldn't get the language right, but the guy was preaching the gospel And tens of thousands of people were coming to Christ because of his ministry. And yet, he had some people in his his life that that began to talk to him about a closer fellowship with the Holy Spirit. They were recognizing that that D.L. Moody didn't speak of the Holy Spirit very often in his his teachings. And so these two old ladies in his church began to pray for D.L. Moody, that that the Spirit would begin to really work in his life in a more direct and powerful way. And uh, they began to communicate to D.L. Moody their concern about the, the lack of emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, initially, D.L. Moody was a little put off, but he began to pray about it and realize that these ladies are right. And he began to realize that there was a lack of power in his life, and he'd been a Christian for some 10 years at this point, but there was something that was missing in his life, and it was a greater intimacy and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And so D.L. Moody began to pray. In fact, right after the Chicago fire, his, uh, his institute, his training institute was destroyed and he went to New York to go and raise funds and he says in his journals that I couldn't, I couldn't raise funds, I just didn't have it in me. All I cared about was crying out to God for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say that one day in the city of New York on Wall Street and he interrupts himself and says, oh, what a day it was. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. He goes on to say that I went to preaching again. The sermons weren't different. I didn't present any new truths and yet hundreds and thousands were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be as dust in the balance. I love these stories because... As I read them, I think I understand that because for the first 10 years or so of of my Christian life and ministry, I was quite uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. I didn't really know what to do with them. And I've I've shared this before, but I always viewed it as God the Father, God the Son, and and the other guy. I didn't really know how to relate to the Holy Spirit. I'd seen the abuses. I'd also seen the rejection. And I knew that both extremes were wrong, but I didn't know how to find the center ground. And God began to speak to me about 12 years ago or 15 years ago at this time uh, in my life and uh, began to minister to me that I needed to cry out for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Bible teaches that when a man or woman receives Christ, that they receive the Spirit of Christ. So every person who's born again, who has accepted Christ as their Savior and have devoted their life to Christ is already indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's a promise that we have in Ephesians. The promise, this 
this uh, seal guaranteeing what's to come. But there is a filling of the Holy Spirit that needs to take place in our lives on a regular basis. In the book of Acts, what we're looking at here is the very first occasion when the Holy Spirit indwelt believers. And so it was a remarkable experience. But now anytime a man or woman receives Christ, they too are indwelt. But not everyone that has the Spirit of God has an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Nor is everyone that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit empowered in a meaningful way by the Holy Spirit for ministry. And there has to be a surrender of our life. And so we're going to be looking at this text this morning. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was so important that his disciples heard these words come from him, his lips in John 16, 7. I tell you the truth, it's better for you that I leave. Because if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I leave, I will send him to you. And then he gave him further instructions to wait in Jerusalem for the coming Holy Spirit. And so we pick up the text in, in verse 1 of chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, Pentecost simply means 50. The day of Pentecost was the 50th day after the Passover feast in the Jewish calendar. The Passover feast being uh, foreshadowing and finally fulfilled in the life of Christ who died as the atoning sacrifice for sins of the world. 50 days later was the day of Pentecost. You remember from our studies that there was 40 days where Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Uh, during that time. And then from that point on, after his ascension, for a 10-day period, the disciples were in a room, in an upper room, 120 of them, praying, seeking the Lord, worshiping, crying out to God, uh, trying to select another disciple as we, as we covered uh, last week. But the day of Pentecost was a, was a very important day in the calendar. And I want to share just a couple of quick things that, uh, that are very interesting, I think noteworthy facts about Pentecost. Uh, number one is it was also called the Feast of Weeks, if you're familiar with that term, or the first fruits, because on that day, the first fruits of the first grain harvest would be brought before the Lord, and they would bring two loaves of leavened bread before God as a wave offering. Now, it's interesting that it's two loaves, and uh, I believe that's really foreshadowing the makeup of what would become the early church, made up of both Jew and Gentile, two loaves. And it's leavened bread, uh, if you know uh, the, the Bible history very well, you know that leaven was a sign for sin. It was a sim symbol of sin. And it was the only sacrifice that the people of Israel were allowed to make that had yeast in the bread. And there's a reason for that too, because this church made up of Jew and Gentile would be a church of forgiven men and women, but imperfect, still not complete. And so we have this really wonderful symbol of the two loaves of leaven and it gives me a great deal of encouragement because this work of, this, um, of these sacrifices are thousands of years old and God knew in advance that we would struggle even as believers today, that it would be made up of Jew and Gentile and it would be made up of men and women who are forgiven but not perfect. And so just knowing that God already made provision for this gives me a great deal of encouragement because none of us are perfect and, uh, and God knows that. And yet he's made provision for us to be forgiven of our sins so we can come to the Lord and know that he's aware of our propensity to struggle with areas of temptation and sin, not excusing it, but making provision in John, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So on this day of Pentecost that, um, uh, that would become transformational for these 120 and for the people in Jerusalem, uh, we find the conditions of, this, of his coming, of the coming of the Holy Spirit, that all the disciples were together in one place. They were of one mind. They were of one spirit. They were waiting for this promise that God had uh, given them through Jesus Christ. And they had this heart of expectation. Now, mind you, they had no idea what this was going to look like. They didn't have the foggiest idea what it would mean for the Holy Spirit to come. They only knew they were to wait in Jerusalem and that the Holy Spirit would be given to them. And so the text tells us in verse 2 that it happened suddenly, unexpectedly. They were caught off guard by it. One of the things I like about this text, and I, I don't know if I'm going to get through this whole thing, so I'm going to have to abbreviate some passages and just trust the Lord that the things that I can't share, I'll be able to talk about at another time. But one of the things I love about this unexpected aspect of the text is that it says in verse 2 that they were sitting when this happened. 
They weren't dancing. They weren't running. They weren't slaying each other in the spirit. They weren't practicing on what it would be like to speak in tongues. I mean, they were just sitting. And, and really what that speaks to me about is the rest and abiding life in Christ and what it's like when a person is really filled with the spirit. It's not necessarily some enormously active uh, effort to try to get the attention and power of the Holy Spirit, but they're simply sitting. And in that sitting position, the Spirit of God comes while they're at rest, while they're simply abiding, while they're simply praying, while they're simply worshiping, the Holy Spirit comes and he comes suddenly. And the text tells us that it was like a violent sound of wind. Notice it doesn't say it was windy, it just said it was the sound of wind. And uh, boy, if you've ever heard wind, you know that wind can sound like a freight train. Some of you have been through tornadoes, probably not too many on Kauai, although I've seen water spouts here occasionally, but they're not very loud. But, but Kauai knows hurricanes. And those of you that were here during the hurricane, you know the, the awesome freight train sound of that wind blowing and, of course, the destructive power of, of the wind. And so this wind was so powerful, and the Bible says that it came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. As I was thinking about this text and praying about it, I was reminded of Jesus because in, uh, in John 20, 21 and 22, after his resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven, he was talking to the disciples and he came to them and they were frightened. They thought it was a ghost. But Jesus came to them and said, peace be unto you. And the text in that passage says that as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for breath is the very same word for the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the fullness of that didn't happen until the day of Pentecost, but he breathed on them. And, and I get the idea that this was kind of a gentle experience with, with Jesus. I don't, I don't see him, you know, blowing really hard on these guys. I just see him going, you know, something like that. But now we have this mighty wind, and it's not from uh, I, the incarnation of Christ in, in a human form, but now it's coming from heaven. And God, the creator of the universe, who holds a very world in the palm of his hand, blows. And it's a little bit more, you know, there's a little bit more activity here going on. And so we hear this violent wind that's coming from heaven, and God himself is breathing on these disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. And it filled the house where they were sitting. We find in the text some of the evidences of the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we find in verse 3 is that tongues of fire separated and rested on the heads of each of these disciples. Even as John the Baptist said what happened in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Have you ever wondered why the fire part of it? Why, why the fire? Why not just... He will give you the Holy Spirit. I'm baptizing with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But he says with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I think there's a very important reason, in fact, several important reasons why the Holy Spirit came with fire. And there may be others, but these are the ones that, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit gave me as I was preparing. Because fire has so much symbolic meaning in the Old Testament. And there are three primary things that fire accomplished in terms of symbolism in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But the first is simply purification. Fire was the means by which, uh, for instance, gold that was uh, not pure was purified. You burn it, you raise the heat, it melts, and the dross and the lag and all the stuff that you want to get rid of floats to the top and you skim it off. And you keep doing that until you have pure gold. And I think one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer if the Holy Spirit is having complete access to the heart of a man or woman, is that his work is to purify us from sin. That's part of the reason why when a man or woman claims to be born again and filled with the Spirit, one of the things that should be evident in their life is a desire for purity and holiness in their life. They don't continue on in known sin. They don't continue on in, in areas where they know God is not honored and where his word is not being honored. But one of the marks of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he wants to purify our hearts. In fact, the Bible teaches on this so extensively that even in 1 Peter, when Peter's talking about this purifying work of God, 
he says that it's going to begin with the church. He's going to purify the whole world eventually, but God's purifying work must begin with the church. And that's why it's so important that we're not lax about sin in our life, that we don't think about somebody that, you know, is having an adulterous affair as like, well, let's just keep loving them, you know. I mean, we'll just, they're doing the best they can. I'm not talking about people that are just attending church. I'm talking about leadership. I'm talking about places in ministry and churches where, where people are allowed to go on in ministry because people are too afraid to address it. People are too intimidated to actually say, we love you enough to, to speak the truth to you. And we'll speak the truth in love. And they, these are wounds, but they're wounds from a friend. And so God is looking for the church to, to guard itself and protect itself and to monitor itself in this area of sin. We're not to judge unbelievers, but the Bible says, Paul says, aren't we to judge the church? Yes, we are but only with the purpose of purifying the church and helping men and women walk with God. And so the first symbol of fire in the Old Testament is this work of purifying uh, that God does by his spirit. A second uh, purpose of the symbol of fire is the approval of God. Oftentimes you find in the Old Testament, and these must have been glorious experiences, where the people come before God and they prepare a sacrifice for God, like at the dedication of the temple, and they present all this to God, and then they, they're, they're, they're just waiting, and all of a sudden, they're thinking, we're going to light the fire and we're going to offer the sacrifice to God. But no, all of a sudden, from heaven, fire falls, you know, and it just consumes the offering, and the people just explode in, in jubilant worship because they recognize that when that happens, it's the sign of God's approval and acceptance of that sacrifice. So here are these 120 in the upper room. And they're not sacrificing animals, but they're doing exactly what Romans 12.1 would later say through the writings of Paul, is that they are presenting themselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And so this fire alights itself on the heads of each of these men and women, demonstrating, I believe, the approval of God and the sacrifice that they're making before him. And then the final thing is just the, the symbolizing of fire is the presence of God. At the burning bush on Mount Sinai, the pillar of fire that, uh, that accompanied the people of Israel throughout their wilderness wanderings, it just meant that God is with you. And so they had this visible, tangible evidence of God's approval, of the purifying work of the Spirit, and also the presence of God. What a remarkable, remarkable experience. It was a phenomenon. It was incredible. And there were, um, the Bible says, in addition, all these things, that they were filled with the Spirit of God. And, and um, if you've never experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit, if you've never had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, um, which we should be having on a fairly regular basis, although you can't predict it and you can't say, uh, you know, tomorrow at uh, 3 o'clock when I have my time of prayer, I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. It's something that we accept by faith, we ask for by faith, and we receive by faith. But then there are those moments where you have this incredible sensation and, and emotional experience. And if you've had that experience, you know what I'm talking about. It's exactly what D.L. Moody says. He wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Everything else that the world could offer is like dust in the scales compared to having a filling of the Holy Spirit. And yet these disciples experienced that with 120 simultaneously. And the Bible tells us in verse 4 that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, these were known languages, these were languages that were not taught to these disciples. They didn't learn these languages. They didn't go to school for these languages. They didn't get those little cassettes that in one hour a day in 30 days, you too can learn the language for $29.95. They were languages that were understood by these visiting people in Jerusalem. Now, I, I want to share with you briefly that Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time of Christ, wrote that the normal population of the city of Jerusalem was about 150,000. But during these festivals and feasts, it would swell to over a million. And so you've got over a million people in Jerusalem that are coming from all parts of the world. They're Jews. They're Jews that through the Assyrian uh, uh, attacks and through the Babylonian occupations and exiling and through Persia and the conquering, uh, as well as through Alexander the Great and his effort to disperse the Jews everywhere. These, these were Jews, and yet they lived all over the world. And they'd lived all over the world for generations already. And they had the language of Hebrew, but their primary language was the language from wherever they came. And yet they all came to Jerusalem because they were Jewish and they wanted to worship God. 
And so they came for these sacrifices and feasts. And it's, it's worth noting as well that probably most of the people that were there were people that had been in Jerusalem 50 days earlier when Jesus was crucified. And many of them made up the mob, either intentionally or unintentionally, just by virtue of being there, of the cries that were being screamed out by people, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so 50 days earlier, many of these same people that we're looking at now that are going to be affected by this remarkable experience um, just days earlier, a month and a half earlier, were, were there witnesses of the brutality of the Jews and also the Romans against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But they were unable to speak with these tongues and a lot of people have questions about tongues and I've taught on tongues many times. I don't have time today to go into detail about uh, the hows and the wherefores and when it's appropriate and the purpose of tongues in, in, in uh, extensive detail. And I don't have time to talk about uh, signs of when tongues are being abused and when they're being misused. But I will share a couple of things briefly with you. Is there are basically two camps on this issue of tongues. There are those that believe that tongues is a, is a, is a valid gift for today, that it's primarily a gift to be a witness or a, um, a, a means of communicating the authority of Christ to unbelievers, but also a private prayer language, as it talks about in, second, in 1 Corinthians uh, to the believers, that there's this private prayer language aspect of it as well. And many people believe that tongues are, are, are still for today, and I'm certainly in that camp. The other group of people believe that that tongues were in effect at the time of the early church, but now that the purpose of tongues, which many believe is simply for the preaching of the gospel to the nations in a very rapid fashion, that once that's completed and these thousands of people went out affected by the gospel and now in their own language were able to preach the gospel, that the purpose of tongues has ended and therefore tongues is no longer a valid ministry gift for today. And so those are the two camps. Uh, what I will tell you in my, uh, in just briefly here is that I'm grieved that tongues has become such a litmus test and such a, a, a lightning rod for so much controversy in the church. And the Holy Spirit has, um, uh, and I think Satan has used it dramatically to prevent people from having intimate communion with the Holy Spirit because we're so disturbed by either the abuse or the neglect of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and churches and friends and Christians camp on these issues. And, and they, they divide over these issues. And what I'll tell you briefly is, number one, is if you're born again, you're already indwelt by the Spirit. It's just a matter of giving yourself more freely and more openly to God and the work of the Spirit, being led by Him, keeping in step with Him, being filled by Him. Speaking in tongues is not a litmus test for the Spirit-filled life. I've heard that for years. You've heard it for years. Well, you're not really experiencing everything God wants in your life if you can't speak in tongues. But the Scripture says plainly, not everyone speaks in tongues. Some are given this gift, some are given that gift, and some are given the gift of tongues. And what mystifies me to this day is the emphasis out of all the gifts that are mentioned in the Bible, and there are many gifts and probably many that aren't even listed, out of all those gifts, people camp on this issue of tongues. What does Paul say about tongues? It's the least of all the gifts. It's a great gift, but it's the least of all the gifts. When was the last time you had someone come up to you and say, are you born again? And you say, yes. And they said, are you spirit-filled? And you, and you say, yes. And they say, well, can you prophesy? <laughs> Has anyone ever said that to you? Has anyone ever said, can you heal? Can you raise the dead? Are you a good administrator? Would you like that gift? I can pray for you right now. Are you following me? But everyone camps on this gift of tongues. And it's a big mistake. And unfortunately, it's, it's caused many, many Christians to turn away from the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given them and the fellowship that the Holy Spirit wants to have in their lives. But these men and women were filled and they didn't have all the trappings and confusion and false teaching at that time. They just suddenly were filled with the Spirit. And without any prompting, I love this in the text, it doesn't say that Peter got the gift first and then, and then prayed for the other guys and said, now repeat after me, she bought me a Honda, she bought me a Honda, she bought me a Honda. <laughs> and then just go off on your own. As you guys feel ready, you just kind of just wing it and we'll just uh, see what God can do here, you know. Let me lay hands on you. Slay that buddy in spirit. Slay this guy, you know. No, we don't have any of that. All of them were simultaneously filled by the work of God, 
not by the promptings of man. You see how we're laughing about it because we know how foolish what we've done is and what we've seen done. We know how ridiculous it is to try to get somebody to prompt by following words that we say or that we've made up. And yet, it's, so, it's such a pure thing that we're seeing here as it should be when the work of God is really taking place in people's lives. And the impact is understandably significant because all these God-fearing Jews heard this sound, not of the tongues, but of the violent wind, and they came. What, what's going on? This violent sound, this, like a train coming through town, and yet there's no wind. And so they come to investigate what it is, and they came together in bewilderment because when they got there, what they heard is they heard people speaking in at least, according to Dr. Luke here, at least 16 different languages. And I would suggest that that's probably just uh, a smattering of some of the dialects and some of the languages that were being spoken because you've got 120 people. And my guess is, and I'm, this is pure speculation, but my guess is that the 16 languages that, uh, that Luke mentions are just the primary languages, but there were probably many dialects even within those languages that were being spoken. And mind you, they weren't bumbling over this and they weren't sounding stupid uh, they weren't, uh, you know, uh, mispronouncing even one word, but everything that they said came out as if they were natives of that country from where this language originated. And the people were blown away. And they said, aren't these people Galileans? That was a real put down, if, if, uh, if you're not aware of that, uh, because Galileans were considered uneducated and uncultured. They couldn't even speak their own language very well. And we have that from Josephus who talked about their guttural sounds that they had and how they had trouble pronouncing certain words even in their own language. And so they say, aren't these guys Galileans? They can't even speak their own language. And listen, it's the best, most, the, the purest form of the, my language I've ever heard. And this guy says the same thing and that woman says the same thing. And they're absolutely bewildered. It means it's to, throw, to be thrown into disorder. They are so amazed at what's happening that there's absolute pandemonium and confusion about what all of this means. I thought about these things and I thought, you know, this is an amazing thing. Because if you look back in the book of Genesis, the world had a single language up until the Tower of Babel. At the time of the Tower of Babel, we remember what they were doing with that single language. They were using it to rebel against God. And God, because of that, confused their language, not to, not to hinder them and, and somehow make them less uh, of what, they, what he wanted them to be, but to actually bring them back to their senses because with this singular universal language they had, they were using it to rebel against God. And so he confused their languages and they just split up all over the face of the planet. That's how we got all these languages. And yet now at this point, we have in essence a reversal of the curse of Babel because in one day, on, in one moment, with this day of Pentecost, God speaks through 120 men and women in languages that they've never heard before, never spoken before, and yet they're speaking and they're bringing together, in essence, the universal power of God through language to communicate the gospel. And yet he's doing it through a variety of different languages. It's just remarkable. I, I wish I had time, and I'll, I'll share briefly, but I wish I had time to talk more about what I want to share with you next. And that's that that God's timing in the coming Messiah. You remember how the scripture says, the time isn't ready, the time isn't ready. And then when all things reached their climax and the fulfillment of time had come, Jesus was born. Have you ever wondered why that moment was so important? Well, I'll tell you just one reason out of many. One reason was that the world never had a universal language until just before the coming of Christ. And it came because of Alexander the Great. He conquered the Persians and his primary goal, he wasn't a believer, wasn't a Christian, his primary goal was to make the entire world of the Greek culture and to have a one world universal language, which would be Greek. Why would God wait for that moment? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he wanted the gospel preached and unhindered. Right now, to preach the gospel to the whole world, we, we have Wycliffe Bible translators and they've been translating for 50, 60, 70 years and they're still not there. They still don't have every language translated. So not everyone has even received the message of the gospel. But at that time, with the, 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 the intersection of all of these world events taking place, including the universal language of Greek, 
God brought the Messiah so that people in as rapid a fashion as possible, the gospel might spread over the entire world. And we know historically from the book of Acts that in 30 short years, the gospel went to the whole world. This is remarkable, but it's the timing of God. It's the power of God. It's the orchestration of God's wonderful purposes. And we're told in the text that that the people heard them declaring the wonders of God. And I'll, I'll just share briefly that if anyone ever speaks in tongues and then gives an interpretation and starts telling you what you should be doing from God, you know right away it's not from God. The purpose of tongues is the glorification and praise and worship of God. So if you ever hear somebody speak in tongues and then somebody gets up and says, thus says the Lord, you must go out and the Lord's not happy with you and you must repent. Well, right away, you know it's not from God. You, you can strike that person off as a reliable witness of the Holy Spirit in the gift of tongues because tongues only has one objective and that's the praise and worship of God in languages that are either uh, unknown to us or languages that we've never, uh, we've never learned or we're not aware of. But these people were speaking in tongues and, and, um, and right away, as happens with something that we don't understand, some people will think, wow, I'm curious. I want to know what this means. And then there are other people who immediately uh, dismiss something like this and uh, with doubt and ridicule. And we have both responses. Many of the people said, what does this mean? And the other people said, they're drunk. And so Peter stands up. I love this part. <laughs> I love Peter standing up. I mean, it's such a simple little phrase, but here's this guy, the coward that ran away. His whole history, his, God, his name is in the Bible and all the gospels that he ran away. But in Acts, he stands up because scripture was fulfilled. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so a man who is weak in his own strength becomes empowered by God. And he's got a very simple message. He gives an explanation concerning this phenomenon of tongues. And secondly, a declaration concerning the true identity of Christ as the Messiah, the promised, awaited, anointed one. And then thirdly, an application of what the crowd needs to do. But he begins in verse 15 by rejecting the accusation of drunkenness and it directs them to the prophecy in Joel. And I, I wish that I had time to, um, uh, to go over this prophecy verse by verse, but, uh, but I can't do that. Suffice it to say that the prophet Joel describes in advance this day of Pentecost. And he says, in essence, this is exactly what the prophet predicted. In other words, this isn't some strange thing. This isn't some thing out of left field. This isn't some cultic experience. But this is exactly what's predicted and prophesied in scripture by the prophet Joel. And so he takes these Jews who know the word backward and forward and he said, let me tell you what this means. They're asking, what does it mean? Let me tell you what it means. And Peter takes them to the word of God and explains that this isn't some bizarre phenomenon, but this is the plan of God. The second thing that he does is that he, he defends the ministry of Jesus in verse 22, saying that Jesus was accredited by God by miracles, wonders, and signs. You know, all the miracles, the changing water to wine that he began with, the uh, stilling the winds and the wave, multiplying the loaves and the fishes, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, walking on water, all of these things had a singular purpose, the primary purpose being that, that they would accredit his ministry. In other words, they would be proof and evidence that he was who he said he was. Do you remember when John was in prison? John the Baptist, and he still wasn't sure if this was Jesus. And so he said, are you the one? He told his disciples, go ask that guy Jesus. Are you the one? And what did Jesus say? Hey, you go back and tell John that the blind are seeing and the dead are being raised. And he goes through all these miraculous things and he says, blessed is the man who doesn't stumble on account of me. And what he's saying is that the, I'm being accredited. Jesus is saying, I'm being accredited by God himself by these miraculous signs. They were prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would have that power. But then Peter really lays into the Jews. Verse 23, he said that God handed uh, Jesus over to the Jews by his set purpose and foreknowledge. But he said, you put him to death. Wow, this is powerful. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge, these things happen. In other words, this wasn't because of the Jews or the Romans that this occurred. This was God's plan from before time began. This wasn't some uh, hurry-up offense after, you know, uh, uh, you know, some plays by Satan that Jesus wasn't ready for, that God wasn't expecting. No. This was planned long in advance. And in essence, that means that the Jews 
They could say, well, then we're not responsible. But Peter comes right in and says, but you crucified him. Wow. How'd you like to have a pastor like that? <laughs> Just lays it out like that. And if you think he's bold here, listen to what he says to the Jews in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, you killed the author of life. I'm not sure anybody can be confused about what that means. Are you talking to us? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Peter was laying it out just as heavily as he could. And with this striking announcement, I can't imagine the, the power of that and the, the jaw-dropping experience for these Jews to listen to this message. It was amazing. And Peter said that despite the, this fact, God raised him from the dead. And he quotes from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 about the power of God, that, that God would not let his anointed one see decay, but he would be raised up again. And he declares to the people that this God, that God who made Jesus, or not made Jesus, but made this Jesus whom they crucified to be both Lord and Christ, Lord being master, the dominant one, the ruler of all things, the king of all men, the one who holds the keys of life and death and heaven and hell in his hands. He is the master. He is our Lord, our supreme authority. And Christ, the anointed or the Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer, the only hope for mankind. And so God has made Christ through his death and resurrection, both Lord and Christ. And in a, in a kind of an awkward foreign way, as believers today, we separate those two and say, well, I made him my savior, but it wasn't until years later that I made him my Lord. Well, that's pretty foreign to the Bible, but it's a good way of helping people understand the difference. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've been forgiven of your sins, but until you have made him the master of everything in your life, he is not your Lord. But God said he made Christ both Lord and Master and Savior. Well, the people were blown away in verse 37. Their response was that they were cut to the heart. And I love this because if you remember just a 50 days earlier that, uh, that Peter was doing some cutting of his own on the high priest's temple servant, Malchus. And the best he could do was cut off the guy's ear. He made a mess. It was embarrassing. Uh, you know, Jesus had to kind of fix it all up for him. Uh, but it was a very weak and impotent effort to try to do something meaningful in terms of advancing the gospel. And so his first attempt in the flesh was miserable. And yet now, filled by the power and the spirit of God, he starts doing some cutting again, but not with a physical sword, but with a sword of the word of God, which is what Hebrews 4 tells us. It's powerful. It's effective. It's like a double-edged sword. And it cuts the hearts of men and women and lays them bare, the thoughts and intents of the heart. Between joints and marrow, it, it opens the person's heart up in a way that nothing else can. And so here, here Peter is learning what life in the spirit is like. It's a life filled with power. It's a life filled with effectiveness. It reminds me of, of what, um, what D.L. Moody said. I would never want to go back. I was preaching the very same messages. I was doing the very same things. And now I was seeing a completely different level of effectiveness and fruitfulness. And the people were blown away and they were cut to the heart and they asked what they should do. And Peter simply says, you must repent. Metanoeo in the Greek. Meta means, you know, like metamorphosis. It's to change. And noeo is the mind. We have to change our mind. That's what repentance means. We have to change our minds about who God is. We need to change our mind about who Christ is to come to Christ. We need to change our mind about the Holy Spirit and, and not let his identity be attached to the abuses or neglect that we've seen in the church. But we need to go to the word of God and find out what the Bible says about the person of the Holy Spirit. And repentance, according to the scriptures, is always accompanied not just by sorrow, but by a changed life. Jesus said through Paul in Acts 26, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And then he said, I want you to be baptized, which is simply an outward sign of a commitment, a covenant of an inward work that's already taken place. Peter said, if you do these things, that you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which uh, again goes to this issue. You don't need to have a second experience in order to receive the gift. You need to have ongoing experiences of fillings, but we receive the Spirit of Christ when we're born again. But after that, it's a daily surrender to God that we might be filled, that we might be led by the Spirit, that we might keep in step with the Spirit, 
that we might know his heart, that we might listen, that we might pray. This is why it's so absolutely vital that we develop a relationship of intimacy and koinonia that the Bible speaks of with the Holy Spirit. But after doing all these things, he warned them and pleaded with them to be saved. And the result was astonishing. 3,000 people, his very first sermon. The guy stuck his foot in his mouth so many times and yet he comes out of the gate because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and he cuts the people to the heart by the word of God and 3,000 people come to Christ on his very first outing. That's kind of a bummer for Peter, I would think, because it's like, you know, there were other people probably times when many thousands came to Christ, but it would be hard for him not to think back, oh, I miss those days when 3,000 used to come to Christ at once. I only have, you know, 2,500 today, but, um, you know, oh, 3,000. God, give me four. You know, I can just, I can think that that might be his heart. But the result is that 3,000 people were, uh, were transformed. 3,000 people that were in darkness were brought into the light. 3,000 people that were headed for hell now had the promise of eternal life. 3,000 people that, that had no relationship with the Holy Spirit were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And they experienced what I like to refer to as a second incarnation. The first being Jesus coming into human flesh. And the second being the third person of the Trinity, once again, coming into human flesh. And it wasn't just for the apostles. It wasn't just for the 120. But it was for any that would call on the name of the Lord. Any that would be saved would receive that gift. We started out talking about D.L. Moody. Years later, after this experience of this filling of the Holy Spirit in D.L. Moody's life, there was a group of people, every major city in the United States wanted D.L. Moody to come and speak and to give his, uh, uh, to do these tent revivals because thousands of people were coming to Christ. And there was one major city that the pastors got together and they were considering bringing D.L. Moody uh, to their city. But after much discussion, one of the young pastors got up and said, you know, who is D.L. Moody? Why, why D.L. Moody? Uh, does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And it got very quiet. People were really surprised and a bit blown away by his comments. But after a period of silence, one of the older godly pastors among them spoke up and he said, no, son, D.L. Moody doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. And they brought him to the city and great things happened. I think ultimately that's what the message is of this text is God, yes, in the book of Acts, for the first time, men and women being indwelt in, ways, in a way that had never occurred before. We're seeing phenomena that had never happened before, speaking in tongues in that manner. But for us as New Testament believers, we are indwelt by the Spirit. And the question isn't, do you have the Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on your life? I think part of the reason why the church is so weak is because the Holy Spirit doesn't have a monopoly on our lives. He has this part and that part. He has this time of the day during this part of the week. But God is looking for men and women who are completely set apart for him, who are, in essence, in the upper room, living a lifestyle of prayer and seeking God, not neglecting our jobs or our families, but in the midst of taking care of what God has given us to do, seeking the Lord, and in essence, becoming living sacrifices. I think God is looking to fire the body of Christ up again, not with flesh, not with our own derived programs and, and strategies, but I think he's looking to fire us up with power from above, from power from within by the Spirit of God. But he's looking for men and women who are willing sacrifices, who are saying, in view of your mercy, God, I present myself as a living sacrifice. And the fire of God comes down and consumes that sacrifice. And he communicates to us his pleasure and he fills us with power. And amazing things happen. That's what God wants to do. I want him to do it. I pray you want it too. Father, we thank you for your work this morning and for your word as we study your scriptures. And God, I thank you for your spirit. Holy Spirit, what can we say? It was an amazing thing that Jesus took up human flesh and yet his flesh was sinless which makes your incarnation even more remarkable because you have taken up residence in atoned for temples, but still not perfected temples. I pray that you would purify our hearts and that you would give us a desire to be filled and that we would be like D.L. Moody, that there are no secret keys to any of this. It's just asking. That's the key. 
The Bible says, ask. And just as a father will give good gifts to his children, how much more will the Holy Spirit or God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us again. I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond briefly. I know that we're, we're a little over time here, but I'd like to just give you an opportunity. If something's happened in your heart this morning as a result of, uh, of the word of God and the teaching of the word, and there's this heart cry in your life to have relationship with the Holy Spirit and to, to be monopolized by him, and you want to surrender your life as a living sacrifice, and there's just something happening in your heart right now, don't, don't do anything if God's not working. But if something's happening and you're recognizing it and you would like to respond, I just want you to stand right where you are. I want to pray with you and for you uh, because I'm standing. I'm already standing, but I'm standing again because I want more of what God wants to do. If you, if you want that in your life, I just want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray with you and for you. Anyone that wants that, just to cry out for a fresh filling, tired of just being good people, tired of just trying to do the right things, tired of simply trying to live the Christian life in your own strength. You're weary. Uh, you might, might, might even be a bit bored in your Christian life and you would like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Father, you see all these people standing and I'm standing with them and God, we're crying out. We're just like D.L. Moody. We're like these 20 people that are written in this book. We're, we're like the saints of the old that, that simply are crying out and say, God, we don't know what to do. We can't, we can't, orchestrate this, but we're crying out and saying, God, we want everything you have for us. And probably the biggest problem we have is that you don't have a monopoly on our life. And God, we want to give you a monopoly on our life. We want you to take over. We want to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And God, whatever evidence of approval and of blessing that you want to put on our heads as you did in that early New Testament church in those beginning days, God, I pray that you would do it again. And that it would be evidenced, not necessarily by tongues of fire, that was a very unique experience, but by power in ministry. That you would empower us to preach the gospel to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And God, that men and women would come to Christ and that you would give us a heart for the lost, even as Jesus had. God, empower us, fill us, give us joy again. Give us an understanding of your heart again. And draw us close that we might be in complete cooperation with you in every area of our life. And may it be to your glory and to your praise. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.